Well, good morning. If you have a Bible this morning, open it up to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. And uh, before we pray, I'm going to read from verses 13 to uh, 16. We're continuing in our series about tough questions surrounding the Christian faith in our lives. Um, So while you're kind of getting there, let me just give you a little preview of next week. uh, We're going to talk, I mentioned this last week, we're going to talk about what does the Bible say on the issue of homosexuality. Last week we talked generally about the subject of what the Bible says about sex, uh, but we felt like we needed to specifically address this particular issue given our culture and, and where our culture is on this issue. And so uh, we want to talk about that specifically. I hope you'll come back for that as well next week. Um, this week we're going to talk about the issue of life. So uh, Psalm 139, starting in chapter 13, starting in verse 13, excuse me, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Would you pray with me? Our God, we're grateful that we are here this morning because you have created us, you have made each of us in your image, and you continue to preserve our lives. Father, we remember uh, the words of Paul in Colossians that Jesus Christ holds this whole world together. Uh, Father, without him, we know that uh, we would not be alive, this world would fly apart, but that you are the Uh, sustaining, preserving, life-giving God. And we thank you. We thank you for the life you've given us as well in Jesus Christ. And we pray we would reflect that life in what we say and what we do. And Father, we pray give us wisdom as we study your word this morning. Help us to understand what it has to say. Father, I pray that we would believe it and um, grasp those truths for ourselves. And I pray that we would apply them to our lives. We thank you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of us grew up reading Dr. Seuss books uh, or Dr. Seuss or however you pronounce it, but uh, many of us grew up reading his books. And one of his early books was this little book called a Horton Hears a Who. Now, some of y'all may have seen there was a movie that came out a couple of years ago based on the book. And in the book, uh, there's an elephant. He's the primary character. His name is Horton. And uh, one day, Horton finds himself in a pond taking a bath or splashing around when he happens to hear a little voice. And he stops and he thinks, well, what is that little voice? And he doesn't see anybody, but he hears it. And all he sees in the air is a speck of dust floating by. So Horton believes that there must be a person or persons on this speck of dust. And so he takes the speck of dust and he carefully places it on a clover and he instructs the kangaroos who come by just at that moment, do not disturb my little friends who are on the speck of dust that is on the clover. Now, needless to say, the kangaroos and the monkeys and all of the other animals believe that Horton is making it up. There's no people on there. But Horton begins to hear them. They begin to talk to him. And it turns out there's a whole civilization living on this clover. And Horton decides it's my job to protect them. So he begins the process of protecting them from the monkeys who take the clover and they try to destroy it and they try to throw it all over the place. But in the end, of course, and I hope I'm not giving too much away, Horton actually does 
end up saving them, right? And, and it's a great little story. And there's several lines in there that I think are, are very poignant. One is, I've got to protect them. Horton says, I've got to protect them. Why? Because I'm bigger than they are. And then there's a, a line that's very famous in the book where he says, a person's a person, no matter how small, right? And that kind of becomes the tagline for the book. Now, what's interesting is the book was written in the 1950s, prior to our culture's debate about the subject of life and particularly about the subject of abortion. But when the movie came out, uh, many pro-life groups chose to use the book as a, a statement of their position, Right? And so they showed up at movie theaters and they began to hold up signs saying a person's a person, no matter how small. Right? And, and now, of course, Dr. Seuss himself is on record saying that's not what the book is about. It was written about uh, Japanese uh, war criminals and Japanese prisoners after World War II. He was arguing we need to take care of the Japanese and rebuild their society. But what's interesting is once we begin to defend the rights of one group, it becomes hard to argue that we shouldn't defend the rights of another. And so people began to see in this book that although Dr. Seuss didn't originally intend it to refer to the issue of abortion or of life, it it readily fit that context. Because once we start talking about defending one group of people, it makes natural sense to begin talking about defending another group of people. And that theme, a person's a person no matter how small, or a person's a person no matter who they are, what their characteristics are, what their race is, their financial status, abilities, capacity, physical or mental abilities. A person is a person. And, and what we're going to look at this morning is what does the Bible say about this issue of life? All right, now we're not just going to talk about the issue of abortion. We're going to talk about it very broadly. What does the scripture say about the issue of life? How God values life. How does God make decisions about our value? Now, this will naturally touch on a couple of topics that we're going to use as illustrations and examples this morning. One is the abortion debate. The other is the issue of euthanasia or the practice of should we uh, allow our culture to put to death those who are disabled or old or less seemingly valuable to our society. We're going to talk about those. Those are just two of the issues that this affects. Right, but as we go into the talk, we need to realize this is a much broader issue than just those two, what the scripture says about life. But because we're going to talk about partly the issue of abortion, I do want to address that briefly and make a couple of disclaimers before we start. One is this. I am not primarily going to talk about it as a political issue this morning. So it may be that uh, you are greatly involved in political action surrounding this issue. And, and if you are, I'm not saying that's wrong. And it may be that for many of you, God calls you into that arena. But primarily, I think here, we're going to talk about it as a biblical and a moral issue because I think it's an issue that ought to be uh, not dependent upon whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. I believe it's a moral issue that the scripture speaks to. All right, the other thing I want to say is this. Given the statistics, I'm aware that there are probably some of you in here for whom abortion has directly impacted your life. Maybe that you have had an abortion. Maybe that you're a guy whose girlfriend has had an abortion. It may be that you have a close family member. And as we talk about the subject, what I'm hoping is that uh, through the scripture, you will see clearly communicated the love and the grace of God for every person, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are. And, And the prevailing theme of this talk is this, that through Jesus Christ, God values and loves and cares for everybody. In fact, that's why he moves toward us in forgiveness and redemption and mercy in Jesus Christ. So if you're a person for whom this issue has directly impacted you, 
Right? And, I, and I know some, and I have friends for whom this issue has directly impacted them. They've had an abortion, and they know somebody who has. I want you to hear this morning that we are not here to say you need to leave. We are not here to say that you are forever condemned because of something that we are going to say from the Scripture is sinful. And yet, there's redemption and forgiveness and mercy in Jesus Christ. And that's what we want you to hear, first and foremost. And again, this discussion this morning is going to touch on all aspects of life because I think as we look at the Bible, what we're going to see is, again, once we begin to defend one group and say this group deserves life, this group deserves dignity, it's impossible for us not to do it for others. And if you guys have been studying the book of James with us, the book of James talks about, interestingly, how we tend to favor the rich over the poor. And as you look through the scripture, the the prevailing theme when we talk about life seems to be whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're small, whether you're big, whether you're smart, not smart, whether you are physically able, not physically able, that God cares for you. And all of us can think in our own lives of individuals or groups of people that we have a hard time valuing. Maybe you can think of that kid from high school that nobody liked. I, I can picture a kid in my head. His name is Tony. And I can still remember from high school, this guy was a guy that uh, he looked a little bit different from everybody else. He had extremely bright red hair, thick Coke bottle glasses. He liked to talk a lot about things that most people didn't care about. So what happened to Tony was by the time we were juniors, seniors in high school, nobody wanted to talk to him. Nobody wanted to be around him. Nobody wanted to come near him. And he experienced a great deal of ridicule. As I've studied these passages about life this morning, it's impacted even my understanding of how I look at the people around me and assign value. Because I tend to assign value based upon things that are important to me. And I think we all do that. And so as we study this issue, realize it's a lot broader than just these two issues. And that's why we're going to begin with this discussion of how God values all life. All right? And that's really where we're going to start. It's this, just a basic statement. God values all life. All life. And the reason, one reason is because God created life. God made it. God breathed into all life his breath. And in fact, biblically, that's true of human beings and animals. And we're going to talk about the distinctions between human beings and animals. But we do see scripturally, God values not just human life. He actually also values animal life. Let me just give you a couple of passages. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, the beasts of the earth. Proverbs 12 says this, whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. In other words, a compassionate person even cares about the life of animals because they recognize that God made them. And in fact, if you look through the Old Testament law, out of respect for life, they were forbidden to eat the blood of animals because the life was contained in the blood and the the life was reserved for God. God owned it. So before they would sacrifice or eat an animal, they would drain the blood out on the ground. God values all life, whether it's human life, whether it's animal life. Now, there is a distinction between animal life and human life. And I do think often our culture has gone too far these days in the direction of valuing animal life, perhaps even over human life. Now, let me just give you kind of one little illustration. This is a uh, doghouse, believe it or not. I found this online. Now, I want you to look at some of the things this doghouse has. This guy in uh, England paid $400,000 for this doghouse, right? That's many times what my home costs my home and my car and all of my assets, actually. Um, <laughs> he has a uh, 52-inch plasma screen TV playing the dog whisperer. 
uh, automated food and water dispensers, self-cleaning eating and drinking bowls, um, an outdoor adventure play area with a climbing ramp, an outdoor sheltered area with closed caption television. There's actually a retina scan entry, I guess, in case some imposter dogs try to sneak into this home. Uh, it will scan their retina, right? So this guy paid all of this money and I look at something like that and I go, wow, what an incredible waste of money, all right? Could this man not have used the money uh, to, uh, for something valuable, something that would improve the lives of the people around him? And yet he chose to use it for a $400,000 doghouse. And what I've seen is in Western society in particular, we have gone to an extreme of saying we value animal life almost over human life. Many of you will remember uh, the big fiasco surrounding Michael Vick, the NFL player who a few years ago was uh, caught uh, doing some terrible things to dogs, right? Engaging in uh, promoting dog fighting and then they would kill the dogs that they deemed were less able to fight. And ultimately he got caught and he went to jail and he went to jail for 21 months He experienced financial ruin. Uh, He ultimately now is playing football again. But boy, if you read some of the columns about him, people wanted him not only to never play football again, but there were columns that I read in respectable newspapers where they suggested we should take Michael Vick and throw him into a field and turn him over to the dogs that he abused. Now, last uh, year, he got out of jail and and a bunch of the Fuhrer uh, kicked up again right when he got out of jail and began to look toward the NFL. But what's interesting is right around the same time that he got out of jail, there was another NFL player, a man named Dante Stallworth, who was uh, uh, driving one night and he had been drinking significantly and he was speeding well over the speed limit and he ran over a man and he flattened him and he killed him, 59-year-old man. And he was tried for manslaughter and he did 30 days in jail. And then he missed one season of football and now he's back. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that what Michael Vick did to the dogs is in any sense okay. But the question is, how does our society so value animal life over human life that the loss of a human life is worth 30 days in jail? And the loss of some dogs is worth two years. And I think it's because we fail to understand that the scripture does indicate there is a significant distinction between animals and humans. And that distinction comes in the fact that God made man in his image. And when we don't realize that, we end up siding with a woman named Ingrid Newkirk, actually one of the founders of PETA, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, says this, there's no rational basis for saying that a human being has special rights. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. They're all animals, right? And yet, biblically, what we see is that God has made man in his image. Let me give you a couple of passages. Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So biblically, mankind becomes the culmination of God's creation. And although the animals, certainly God breathes his breath into them and breathes life into them, only in man and woman does God give his image. What that means is God says, you represent me in a unique way on this earth. Psalm 8 puts it this way. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? 
Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So mankind in God's image is to rule over all of creation. And the Bible does put mankind in a sense at the top, at the culmination of God's creation because we bear God's image. And now there's been all sorts of theological debate through the centuries over what is, what is the image of God? What is that talking about? Right, in the ancient context, an image of a ruler was, was like a, either a statue or it could be a stamp on a coin, and it was something that represented that ruler. If I give you a coin with Caesar's picture on it, I know that this coin represents the government and the authority of Caesar, and it bears his image. Right, and some people have said the image of God is, well, we can think better than the animals. We have better minds. We have better brains. Now, there is a problem with that. And that is that infants or those with severe mental uh, disability sometimes cannot think better than some animals, right? So do we say that the image of God is diminished in them, that they don't bear the image of God or that their value is less than a dog or a cat? No. I don't think that biblically the image of God is primarily about what I can do. If we are judged, if our value is judged by our ability, we're all in big trouble. And the reality is that I think biblically what the image of God is this, is that God has given to human beings the ability instead to reflect his glory in a way that no other creature can do. Because we have the moral capacity to rule the world as God's kingdom representatives. And the image of God is about potential. Whether I'm small, whether I'm tall, whether I am smart, whether I am not, whether I am physically able or not, I have the potential ultimately to reflect physically, emotionally, spiritually God's glory to the world and be his representative on this earth. And so even though right now the image of God is messed up in us because of sin, it is being transformed, especially for those who know Jesus Christ. And one day we will bear the image of God in the way we were meant to, in the way that Adam and Eve did before the fall. And if you look at Psalm 8, there's hints that it says mankind reflects God's glory. There's hints that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve actually shone physically with the glory of God. And one day we will return to that sort of glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, but we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So the scripture says all humankind bears God's image. And this is why in Genesis 9, after the flood, as God is reestablishing the earth and reestablishing mankind, he says to Noah and his family, you can eat any animal you want to. Right? You can shed the blood of an animal and you can eat that animal, but if you shed the blood of a man, I'll take your life. Because there's a distinction between a human being and a rat or a pig or a dog. And God values all, all life. Right? That means the image of God is in every human being independent of financial status, independent of age, independent of capacity, independent of social status, physical strength, marital status, any of those things. That's why we value life. That's why we value human life. Peter Singer is a bioethics professor at Princeton, certainly a very controversial man. And I think he illustrates what happens when we fail to understand this concept of the image of God. He writes, the fact that a being is a human being in the sense of a member of the species Homo sapiens is not relevant to the wrongness of killing it. 
It is rather characteristics like rationality, autonomy, and self-consciousness that makes a difference. Infants lack these characteristics. Killing them, therefore, cannot be equated with killing normal human beings or any other self-conscious beings. So he would argue that the value of life is simply utilitarian. What you can do determines your worth. And yet, biblically, it says, no, every human being is made in the image of God, despite capacity. The reality is, as we, as we look at this world, there certainly are men and women who, uh, because of the effects of sin and the devastation of disease and death in our world, they're unable to think or act or do to the same degree that many others are. And that's why I think biblically what we see is God moving to protect those who are weak and disadvantaged. And what we see biblically is that God cares deeply for those who are disadvantaged, those who cannot protect themselves. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to speak up for those who cannot protect themselves. I don't know how many of you uh, have siblings, either an older brother or a younger brother, but if you do, certainly no doubt you've experienced the common uh, phenomenon of sibling rivalry. I was talking to one of our staff members earlier this week, and uh, she was telling me her older brother, who happens to be one of my best friends, she was saying that when she was young, her older brother would actually uh, hogtie her when her parents were out. He would actually take her feet behind her and her hands and tie them up and then just leave her there until her parents got home. And then she said, every time, somehow he would convince me that I shouldn't tell my parents. And somehow I would buy into it and I wouldn't tell them. And then the next time they'd do the same thing, right? I can remember getting into discussions, uh, arguments with my younger brother who would follow me around and who would want to hang out with me and my friends and who would talk and who would irritate me. And I can remember getting to a boiling point with my younger brother to where I developed with him uh, what I called the pain. And uh, what the pain was, was I would kind of grab, I learned this from watching Star Trek, by the way, as a kid. I would grab kind of the nerves and the muscles in between his shoulder and his neck. And it turns out you actually can inflict some pain that way. And so I would uh, threaten my brother with the pain if he bothered me. And then I would do it And every time I ended up getting in trouble, I never was able to convince him he should not tell my parents. And and all of us, all of us on some level, if we have siblings, we've experienced that. And as I've watched my uh, girls grow up, we have a five-year-old and a two-year-old, we've begun to experience a little bit of that. And although we haven't been perfect at it, one of the things that we've especially been telling the five-year-old, but now that we've got a baby too, we tell the two-year-old this, is that you are responsible for your younger sibling. You are your sister's keeper. And the reason, uh, one of the reasons, not only because she is made in the image of God, but because you are bigger and you are stronger. And biblically, the bigger and the stronger and the, the more powerful has a responsibility to protect the small and the weak and the one who can't defend themselves. So to take your sister and grab the book and shove her on the floor, no, it's not okay. Now, do they always do it? Of course not. But that's a value that we're trying to communicate because God cares deeply for those who are disadvantaged and weak and helpless. Let me give you just a couple of verses. Psalm chapter 72. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Because God made all life and because he grieves the fact that the world is broken due to sin, he is a redemptive God that always wants to move forward and save those who are weak and disadvantaged and helpless. And that includes you and me. 
This is the message of the gospel ultimately is that when we were weak and helpless and separated from God in our sin, God sends Jesus and he moves toward us and Jesus dies in our place so we don't have to suffer death and he rises again so we can have eternal life. And so God is a God who moves toward those who are helpless and seeks to redeem. Another passage. This is from uh, the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So our God is a God that takes those things that are weak and small and despised and wants to use them for his purposes. And so we're called to share in his heart for the weak and helpless and disadvantaged because they bear God's image, because he loves them, because they don't have another defender. Now, this does affect these two issues I mentioned at the beginning, one of which is this issue of euthanasia. Now, some of you may or may not be familiar with that term, but euthanasia is essentially uh, the concept that those who are less valuable to our society, whether they are old, whether they are disabled, whether they are unable to care for themselves, it's okay Uh, often the argument is made out of mercy for the individual. It's okay to put them down. Like we would a a puppy or a cat that is hurting or old. It's okay to do that with people as well. Many of you perhaps saw a movie that came out five or six years ago called Million Dollar Baby. Um, I I watched this movie right after uh, my wife was pregnant with our first daughter, and we had just found out we were having a daughter. And the story is about uh, Clint Eastwood, who plays an older boxing trainer and this young female boxer, and they develop a close father-daughter type of relationship. She's a great boxer, and I'm going to confess, I am going to give away this movie, and I'm sorry uh, if you haven't seen it yet, but uh, the, the, it is, I think, critical to the point that I'm making. They, they begin to uh, develop this relationship, and ultimately she suffers an injury where she's unable to box, she's unable to walk, she's unable to move anything below her neck. Right? And ultimately what happens is she, she decides life is not worth living. She attempts to kill herself in a couple of different ways and is unable, and finally asks this father figure in her life, would you do it for me? And, and he agrees to. And then he rides off in the sunset, I guess, never to be heard from again. And uh, we walked away from the movie theater, and uh, this movie made me, made me cry. I, I felt so much compassion for this woman, and I felt so much compassion for this man. And as I walked away from the movie, I, I, just, I, I told Shannon, I don't know why this movie is affecting me so much. And I don't think it's because I'm disturbed by the euthanasia aspect. Interestingly, I think it's because I so resonate with these characters in this father-daughter relationship. And it took me a while to pull away and realize what this movie had done was it had softened my attitude toward the idea of putting those down who are less able. It had softened my attitude to think, well, maybe her life really wasn't worth that much anymore. She couldn't walk, couldn't box. I mean, come on, right? But over time, I began to realize what it conveys is is an attitude. And in fact, many uh, disabled groups actually protested the movie, saying you're conveying an idea that those who are less able are somehow less worthy. Even if a person decides to choose to die, As we talk about this issue of life, what we realize is God is the one that controls life. It's not my decision. I don't own my life any more than I own your life. God owns all of it. Even if I choose to kill somebody supposedly out of mercy or compassion, the Bible would say, 
Who gave you the authority to determine the value of that life? Luke chapter 14 talks about the disabled specifically. It says, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In other words, with those who are uh, crippled, blind, disabled, lame, unable to help themselves, we're not supposed to go around encouraging their early departure. Instead, we're supposed to surround them with love and give them the grace of God simply because it says they can't repay you. The fact that they are unable to contribute to me is all the more reason to move forward and represent God's heart toward them out of love. And our culture would say, no, the fact that they can't give back is reason to get them out the door. Proverbs 16 talks about, as well, the elderly. It says, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. I'm slowly growing a crown of glory, right? And you are too. And I would encourage you, make this debate far from theoretical in your mind. Go to a nursing home and sit down with these people who have lived life And now, yes, they're on the back end of it, but is their life less valuable than yours? Biblically, it it speaks directly to this issue. And again, the issue really is that we don't own our lives. Romans 14, none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. The second issue is, is this issue of abortion, which we've talked about. I'm not going to show you pictures this morning of abortions. I'm not going to describe the procedure. I think most of us are familiar enough with it to understand that what it, what it essentially is is that uh, the baby that is inside the womb, that that baby is, is somehow destroyed, whether it's at five, six weeks, eight weeks, or whether it's at 25, 30 weeks. Right? And it, it's a practice in our society that really goes back much further than the 35 years since Roe v. Wade, but it used to be more of an illegal backroom-type practice. But what happened was in 1973, there was a young woman named Norma McCorvey, uh, and McCorvey was a poor uh, woman who had had two or three children out of wedlock, and she got pregnant again and decided she could not financially support a third child. Well, in Texas, which is where she was in that day and age, the only way that you could obtain an abortion legally was if you had been raped. So initially, she attempted to claim rape, but there were no police records to support it. And so she was unable to get an abortion. So she took her case to the courts and argued that it should be a fundamental right of a woman to get an abortion. Ultimately, you know the story. It worked its way through the Supreme Court. 1973, the Supreme Court ruled that it is based on a constitutional right of privacy, a fundamental right for a woman to uh, terminate a pregnancy in abortion. And that's where we are today. Um, Let me just give you uh, a few statistics 22% of all pregnancies end in abortion. Between 30 and 40% of women at some point in their life will have an abortion. About 40% of unexpected pregnancies end in abortion. About 1% of those abortions are cases of rape or incest. About 6% are uh, the mother cites a health reason. And that's very broad. It could be I I feel sick all the way to my life is endangered. It's very broad. Right? 93%, and by the way, these are from a a group called the Guttmacher Institute. It's a pro-choice institution. 93% of abortions are for what we would call social or convenience reasons. The most common reasons are it would interfere with my job, education, or other children. 
right? I cannot afford a baby. Uh, I don't want to be a single mother, right? Those are the most common reasons uh, that women give when they go into the clinic. And so where we are as a culture is that the convenience of one party ultimately overrules the life of another. And again, I want to say this with as much compassion as possible. If you're in a place that you, you have had an abortion, know that the forgiveness of Jesus Christ covers that, covers everything. But also know if you're in a place where you, you're considering it, there may be some of you in here this morning that you are just found out that you're pregnant. You're considering this. Know that there are, there are other options. There are other choices out there, and we'll talk about them for a moment. Passages, Psalm chapter 139. We read this earlier. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Another passage, Exodus chapter 21. This is from the Old Testament. This is a very interesting one. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, um, and probably the best understanding of that is they're born prematurely, but there's no harm uh, to either the mother or the baby. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, Foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Right? In other words, all the way back to the Old Testament, we have this understanding that the life in the womb is viewed as valuable, as made in the image of God, regardless of size, regardless of age. What we've seen, what's interesting is in 1973, when Roe v. Wade was first put into practice, ultrasounds during pregnancies were not as common as they are now, right? Most of you, if you have friends that have had a baby or your mom has had a baby, uh, the first picture in the baby book is probably that little ultrasound at eight weeks where you can see the brain and you can see the heart beating. You can see the baby's little fingers and toes already at eight weeks. I know with our kids, we've got those pictures of all of them. And 37, 38 years ago, the ultrasounds were much fuzzier. You couldn't really tell. It just looked like a blob of tissue on that ultrasound. And what's happened is that over time, even technology has begun to demonstrate that the perspective of the scripture is correct. And what's interesting is Norma McCorvey, the the woman who originally brought the Roe v. Wade suit, had a change of heart probably about eight or ten years ago. And she says this, I was sitting in Operation Rescue's office. That was a pro-life group back in the 80s and 90s. I was sitting in their offices when I noticed a fetal development poster The progression was so obvious. The eyes were so sweet. It hurt my heart just looking at them. I ran outside and finally it dawned on me. Norma, I said to myself, they're right. I had worked with pregnant women for years. I had been through three pregnancies and deliveries myself. I should have known. Yet something in that poster made me lose my breath. I kept seeing the picture of that tiny 10-week-old embryo and I said to myself, that's a baby. It's as if blinders just fell off my eyes and I suddenly understood the truth. That's a baby. As believers in Christ, I think we do have a responsibility to defend the rights of those who can't defend themselves, and that includes those who are not yet born. One great option that we can encourage, that we can support, is, is adoption. Planned Parenthood, the national organization that probably does more abortions than any other, just to give you an idea, in 2007 they performed 305,000 abortions. That's about a quarter of all the ones in the U.S. They referred 4,900 women to adoption agencies. There's a clear discrepancy when somebody comes in. They say, I can't afford this child. I'm in a desperate position. 
the natural instinct at many of these clinics is get an abortion. I think that we can move as believers in Jesus Christ to encouraging organizations that, that support adoption, right? And this is not merely academic, just so you guys know, for me. I want to read you guys a letter. This is written from October, October 8th, 1974. Um, it says this, Methodist Mission Home. On September 30th, 1974, I gave birth to a female baby at the Southwest Methodist Hospital in San Antonio, Texas. I would like for the Methodist Mission Home to place my baby in a good adoptive home because I cannot give her the kind of home I would like her to have. I want her to have all the things in life I did not have. I am not able at the time to be a mother and go to school and care for my baby like I would want to. I love her. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to see her hurt and be known as having an unwed mother. I'm making this decision because it is the only best possible answer for me and my baby. And then it's signed uh, by my, my wife's birth mother actually. Uh, this was, and I hope Shannon will forgive me for revealing her birthday here on Sunday morning, but this, uh, this, is very, this is a very real issue to me, right? My wife is here because there was a young woman who decided, I'm going to give this baby to a family that will raise it and will care for it. Right? I have two beautiful daughters and a wonderful son because of a choice that this young woman made. And so I would challenge us as we enter into this debate, yes, we need to speak up, but I think we also can actively support and promote and volunteer and encourage those organizations that promote life. Let me challenge us really quickly as we close. Where do we go from here? Just a few things. One, pray for new perspective for yourself and for our our nation. Not just this issue of abortion, but also this issue of euthanasia and just life in general. Pray for a new perspective that I would be a person that values life and then that I will be a person that actively promotes the value of life. And again, I'm not necessarily talking about walking around with a sign to pick it, although God may direct some of you to do that. But what I am saying is go volunteer at an organization. There's, there's some great ones in town, Hope Pregnancy Center, Aggieland Pregnancy Outreach, that counsel young women who are pregnant and struggling and help them with options other than abortion, primarily adoption. Find ways to actively value life. Even go to a nursing home, like I said earlier, serve there somewhere where you can care for the weak and disadvantaged. I would challenge you to work that into your life, to deliberately be around those who are weaker and disadvantaged and cannot defend themselves because that reflects the heart of God. If you're here this morning and you need help, you need counsel, please, I would encourage you to seek it. Again, the two organizations I mentioned earlier, Hope Pregnancy and Pregnancy Outreach, both here in College Station. If you're a young lady, you know a young lady that's facing this decision, direct them to one of these organizations. And then I'd also encourage you to join us Tuesday night. Um, We are going to have a special forum here Tuesday night across the street in the fellowship hall. This is during the normal growth group time. We're going to have some representatives from Hope Pregnancy Center and APO. Uh, There's going to be a a doctor, a Christian OBGYN, who's going to talk to us about this issue from a medical and professional perspective. We also have a young woman who is the sister of one of our small group leaders who's going to give her own story of how uh, abortion impacted her very personally and yet how uh, she's walking with the Lord now. So I'd encourage you guys to come out to that. Uh, I'm hopeful that it's going to be a great, gracious, compassionate discussion on this issue. Let me challenge us all to begin... How can we seek God's perspective on this issue of life and recognize the value of life is not dependent upon capacity, size, or anything else that we would want to place value on other than the fact that God created us in his image. Jesus Christ died and rose again for all people. 
Would you guys pray with me? God, we love you and we thank you. Thank you for your word and we want to obey it. Lord, we know that this issue has become such a hot button uh, politically. And yet, Lord, we, we want to understand that the value of life is a biblical issue, a spiritual issue. So, Lord, teach us to value all life. Uh, teach us even in our own lives, if, if we're not directly touched right now by either of these two big issues we talked about this morning, we are touched by having to make decisions about how we're going to value people. And let us see them as you would see them. God, we thank you that you've created us, that you've made us. Lord, I pray if there are any in here this morning that don't yet know Jesus Christ and what he's done, you would bring them to a place of trust in him because of his death and resurrection. And let all of us, Lord, reflect the image of God as we move out into the world. We thank you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. See you all next week.